So this morning, uh, we're looking at a, a story in Luke, Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21, Luke 12, 13 through 21. Uh, you'll find it on the screen behind me, or if you've uh, brought it with you, you got it with you. Uh, it'll be on the screen in front of you if you're with us online, uh, Luke 12, 13 through 21. This is another, uh, recently I've done some stories of, uh, that are unique to the book of Luke uh, that Jesus tells. Uh, I'll get into this again a little bit. Um, he's traveling with his disciples from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And on the way, uh, he tells these stories. Um, and we're going to look at another one. But before we do, uh, let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we say thank you. Um, Thank you for meeting us here in this, in this space, in this place. Thank you for uh, your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what you do, that you would open us up so that we can hear you speak. Because we know that your words have the power to transform us and make us new. So speak to us, for your servants are listening. Amen. Luke 12, starting at verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of things, good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. We will go that far. Such a good story, I think. So at this point in Luke's story about Jesus, he and his disciples, like I said, are on a trip from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. Those two places, Galilee and Jerusalem, are the two safest places in the world for them. Surrounded by people who they know and are just like them. Uh, but and, and then if they're going from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, most good Jews would go around the in-between territory. And they would go around that territory because that territory was Samaria, would be enemy territory. And so Jesus says, no, nah, man, we're going to go through that territory. Right? We're going to go. So now they're sort of on edge. They're surrounded by people who aren't like them in, in most every conceivable way. So they're on edge. They, they think they have nothing in common with these Samaritans. At least that's what they think. Right? So now for us in here, this is a pretty safe place. We're surrounded by people who are like us, 
Right? We're surrounded by people who generally uh, believe the same things. We know that when we walk into this place, we'll be loved, we'll be ex- accepted, we'll be, we'll be treated with respect and dignity. But out there, it's a different story. Once we walk out the doors, it's different. We bump up against all kinds of different things that influence us. Right? We bump up against things like, like racism and bigotry and uh, violence and hate, things like gossip and slander. We bump into things like, like lust. We bump into things like not being treated fairly at work or at home or at school. Right? We bump into things like getting sick, right? being worn down. We bump into things like losing our jobs. Out there, we're influenced by this thing called called greed, right? You know, if, if, if ever there was something in this book, right, that sort of directly connects to the world that we live in, like we don't have to work very hard to understand it, it's this reality called greed, right? I mean, we don't just casually bump up against greed every once in a while. It's like, it's like the water in which we swim if we were fish. It's like greed. It's always around us, and it kind of smells a little bit. It stinks, But here's the thing about things that stink. If you're around it for a long enough time, eventually you sort of get used to the smell and it doesn't bother you anymore, right? Which is why it's a good thing we've got Jesus here coming into our space and telling us stories like he told us that remind us of the smell so that maybe we can do something about it. So here's the situation. Here's how it goes. Here's how it goes. This guy walks up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What's going on here? Really, there's nothing unusual about this. Rabbis like Jesus were often asked to settle disputes like this. So here's, apparently here's the situation. So there's this man whose father died and left no will. That means that the guy who comes to Jesus has an older brother uh, who then becomes in charge of the will, the estate. He gets to decide what goes on. And apparently this guy, his older brother, has decided that he doesn't get anything, right? So he, so he goes to Jesus and he's trying to get Jesus to make, he's trying to get Jesus to think that he's out for justice. He just wants what, what's right. Do what's right here, right? Tell my brother to share the inheritance. Tell my brother to divide this up between us. But Jesus sees right through it, right? He knows that this isn't about, this isn't about anything other than greed. Right? Because if it was about something else, he would have asked him, teacher, will you help me reconcile with my brother? Because then after that reconciliation happens, well, then, then he's going to divide the inheritance. But this isn't what, this isn't that. He doesn't come and say, will you help that? Will you help me with my brother? We've got a rift here and it's not working. No, he says, tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So he knows, Jesus knows right away that it's about greed. Right? So he tells a story to expose it. This is such a good story. So once upon a time, there's this rich guy. He's already rich. He already has a lot. He's already loaded, right? And his land, the ground, provided a ginormous crop. Like it's huge, bigger yields than he's ever seen before. He thinks to himself, what am I going to do with all this? Oh my goodness. I have no place to store all this. Right? Then he says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Let's just stop right there just for a moment. Why so irrational? 
Like, why would you tear down the barns you have and build all new, brand new, bigger ones? Why wouldn't you just add on to the barns that you already have? Like, much quicker process. Get there a lot sooner. He's like, no, I'm going to tear them down and build bigger ones. And then his long-term plans are to keep it all to himself. He's like, take life easy. I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. But then the problem is God shows up and says, you dummy. Like tonight, tonight you're going to die. Now who's going to get all your stuff? I think if we're paying attention to the farmer in the story, uh, if we're willing to go there, I think we can choose to see ourselves. Like if we're willing, because here's the thing, Jesus isn't going to force it any more than he forced the guy in the story to understand and see himself. So he's not going to force it. We don't have to. But I think if we're willing to, we can see ourselves in this rich farmer. And here's the deal. I don't think we, we have to bump up against stories like this and read stories like this and, and immediately feel guilt as, as middle-class Americans. I don't think Jesus is trying to guilt anybody into anything. Guilt can sometimes be a great motivator, but most of the time, guilt just makes us wallow in our own stuff and nothing ever changes. No, I think Jesus tells stories like this so that we'll use our imaginations, so that we'll, we'll, we'll begin to imagine living a different kind of life in a different kind of world. I think he tells this story in particular to help us imagine, imagine a, a world where where contentment reigns, where, where we choose to see, like, sometimes enough is enough. I think he tells us this story to, to help us imagine a world where, where small is the new big. And where, imagine a world where we live into, into this reality, the idea that we're all in this together. Like we're all an interconnected family. Right? So let's take those things one at a time. Can we imagine a world where contentment reigns, where enough is enough? Apparently, this guy couldn't imagine a world like that. So here he is. He's already successful. He's already done really, really well for himself. He's rich. He's loaded. When the land produces a huge crop, get that, the land produces. It's all gift. It's all grace. right? The land produces a huge crop. So big, he doesn't even know what to do with it. What in the world am I going to do with all this? The thought never crosses his mind for a single second that he might already have enough. He never thinks to himself, you know what? Enough is enough. My barns are big enough. My barns are plenty big. It never enters his brain that maybe, just maybe, this bumper crop is too much. Here's a question. Can a person ever have too much? The thought never crosses his mind. Enough is enough. Now, here's the deal. This is a reality that that we don't often think about for ourselves. Like oftentimes we look at other people in this world, people who have more than we do, and we think to ourselves, man, those people have enough like, why, what are they going to do with all that stuff? But we never apply this reality to our own lives, right? And sometimes, sometimes I think this can get us into trouble. Back in the, in the, around 2008, we had, remember the Great Recession? 
Remember why that happened? It's because these banks were giving out all kinds of loans, the adjustable rate mortgages for people. We actually got into a loan like this. Uh, when we got out of seminary, got my first church, and, and we got into a loan like this. We hardly had to put anything down. And then after about five years, then the rate was going to balloon, and it was going to go, well, fortunately, we were able to refinance, and we stayed out of trouble. But a lot of people got into this place where all of a sudden their, their interest rate went way up, and people couldn't pay, right? And that had a that, that got the whole, then the housing bubble burst and the whole economy sort of went down on its own, all because people couldn't apply this reality, couldn't apply this enough is enough into our lives. We sort of went after things that were too big for us and we were crushed under the weight of it. And it caused a lot of problems. We got greedy. It's that simple. We got greedy and we know how we got greedy, right? Besides the fact that this is just something that's inside of us. Every time we hop on the interwebs, every time we stream something online, every time we watch something on TV, their advertisements come at us telling us, oh my goodness, you don't have enough. You need more. In our world, enough is never enough. We always want more. Again, it's the water in which we swim. We're constantly dreaming of more, more, more. So here's my hope. My hope is that we'll, we'll take, a, take some time to sort of take a good survey of our own lives and think about this reality of an enough is enough. A person's life does not, does, not, does not consist in the abundance of what they have, their possessions. My hope is that, is that we'll all sort of begin to be better at being content with what we have and enjoy what we've been given because it's all gift. And you know what? The reality is it can all be gone in, in a day, like overnight, and disappear. Imagine a world. Imagine a world where enough is enough. Imagine a world where contentment is the rule. But I think Jesus wants us to move beyond that. I think he wants us to imagine a world where small is the new big. So the farmer couldn't do this. Right? That's obvious enough. My barns aren't big enough to store all my crops. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my old ones and I'll build bigger ones. Now, sometimes we read stories in the Bible and it's hard. To, it takes some work to sort of connect them to our own reality, to our own culture. So we have to do some work there. <laughs> this one doesn't at all. It's like, it's like it speaks directly to us. Because in our world, bigger is better. Bigger is always better. From houses to cars to meals at restaurants. It seems like you get more and more, like the portions we get just continue to get bigger and bigger. We want things supersized. Bigger is always better. We want big business. We want... We want bigger jobs with bigger paychecks. Well, maybe this story is here to, to help sort of reveal the fallacy of big, of bigger is better. Because if you think about Jesus' life, this isn't how Jesus lived his life at all. And he shows us what it looks like to truly be a human being. He wasn't about the big. He was always about the small. Always about the small. Think of it. Five loaves of bread. And two fish. Told stories about mustard seed 
a grain of wheat falling to the ground, sparrow, the lilies of the field, the sower who sowed. He said, let the little children come to me. And often big crowds would come to him and gather around him. But what did Jesus almost every time, what did he do almost every time? We find him getting into a boat and going to the other side of the lake so that he could find a solitary place. He didn't spend much time, hardly any time at all until the end of his life. And then he died for it. He didn't spend any time with the big people in this world, with the powerful people in this world. He spent most of his time with the little people. He spent most of his time with the leper, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the woman at the well. Jesus was small, but he lived large. He lived kingdom of God large. Maybe small is the new big. Maybe we ought to focus on the small. This guy named Kevin Salwin, a wealthy entrepreneur in Atlanta, he's written this book called The Power of Half. He wrote this book all because of an experience he had one time with his 14-year-old daughter riding in a car through the city. They stopped at a stoplight. On one side, they saw this brand new Mercedes coupe, right? Sweet ride. And on the other side, they saw a homeless man begging on the corner. And Hannah, his 14-year-old daughter, looked at both of those two things and thought, there's something odd here. So she said to her dad, Dad, if that man had a less nice car, that man over there could have a meal. Right? The light turned green and they drove on. But she couldn't let it go. It bugged her that badly. So she kept bugging her parents about realities of inequality and, and insisted that their family has to do something about this. Right? So finally, her mom got tired of it one day and said, well, what do you want us to do? Sell the house? Such a great mom line, right? Only it's got her into trouble. Right? You can guess what happened next. Hannah jumped all over that idea. They should sell their house, their huge house. They should donate half the proceeds to charity and they should use the other half and buy a new, smaller replacement home. And guess what? Eventually, that's what they did. Crazy, isn't it? And the Selwyns always thought that having a bigger house would be so much better for their children. right? But then after they downsized, there was much less space to retreat to. And the family spent more time together. Kevin said this, we essentially traded stuff for togetherness and connectedness. Oh! He said, I can't figure out why anybody wouldn't want that. I mean, think about that. Think about the advantages of a smaller house, a smaller space. Of course, the financial difference alone is pretty, is pretty amazing. It's huge. You spend less on the house itself and you have more to spend on maybe higher quality of materials. That way they don't, they don't wear out quite as quick and, and you can sort of save money in the long run. Another advantage is you have the time you'd normally have to have to take to sort of take care of a larger house can be spent differently. Now it can be given to other passions and pursuits and you can spend more time with family, more time with friends, serving the community, right? Not to mention that less space equals less accumulated stuff. 
And we all have basements full of stuff. We have facilities in Ames called storage facilities because we can't fit it all in our houses. So we have to rent space to store all our extra stuff. Like, that's crazy. Imagine a world where small is the new big. It could change all sorts of things. Now imagine a world where we're all in this together. Did you notice in the story? He's just by himself, literally having a conversation with himself. I read this story and I feel so bad for this guy. Like he's utterly alone. Did you notice all the eyes and my's in the story? It's very intentional. Listen to what he says. He thought to himself, so his land produces a bumper crop. And so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, all the eyes and my's. He has no one in his life to help him make a decision about what to do next. Right? Greed, it can make you lonely. No one wants to be around a greedy, greedy person. It sort of, sort of alienates you. What if we're all in this together? I mean, what if that farmer would have sort of, he has this bumper crop, he recognizes the ground produced this crop, it's gift, it's grace. What if he would have sort of gathered all his servants around him and he said to them, oh my goodness, look at this. Guess what? Y'all get a bonus. Right? That way, in a couple of years when the market crashes and the grain is worth as much, at least he'll have friends. At least he'll have relationships. He'll have people he can lean on. What if we're all in this together? Right? Those who have help out those who don't. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Imagine a world where that's the reality. What if we thought about how the decisions we make today will impact our children, our grandchildren, our, even our neighbors? We're all in this together. Let's not just imagine that world. We can actually create that world, right? We can actually live into these things. One more thing. Might be the biggest thing of all in the story. This reality of greed, it leads to a feeling of of self-importance. Self-reliance. As if as if we're the ones who sort of secured our, ourselves all this stuff rather than all of it being gift. Again, Jesus tells these stories intentionally. The ground produced the crop. It's all gift. It's all grace. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, if we're paying any attention at all, in other words, this ought to be so obvious if we're paying any attention at all, it doesn't take us long to realize that the creator of the universe is incredibly generous. We don't just have a few trees for shade. We have whole forests full of countless kinds of trees. We don't have just a few stars so that we can locate north and steer our ships. 
We have billions of stars to enjoy. We don't just have a few birds to control the insects. We have billions of them, all with different shapes and colors and sounds. We don't just have a few friends. We got a whole building full of people surrounding us. The Creator is incredibly generous. You and me, we're made in the image of that generous God. We're made in the image of that generous, that generous God. And my guess is that if enough of us live into that image of that generous God, while we're out there just living our normal lives, greed might just begin to, to sort of lose its grip. And we won't have to imagine a different world. We won't have to imagine a different world where contentment rules, where enough is enough, where small is the new big, where we're all in this together, because we will have begun to work with God to actually create that kind of world. We won't have to imagine it anymore because we'll just be living it naturally. And in doing so, we'll be working with God to transform the world around us. How cool is that? Let's pray.